So tonight, let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation. Father, what a privilege it is to gather in the sacred space, which is where your presence is manifested through the spirit and the word. And the reason for that is we're gathered here, not just for any old reason, but we're gathered in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And with a view to worshiping you in spirit and in truth, we pray now that through the Holy Spirit and through an accurate presentation of the word of God, that this assembly will be edified, strengthened, restored where necessary, and truly built up in the knowledge of our Savior Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father for calling us into a participation with your son, a participation that we pray will become more and more evident to us as we continue in your word. And we present ourselves to you now as a living sacrifice, as we often do, for the purpose of the renovation of our thinking, which results in the transformation of our lives. Thank you for the opportunity to study the gospel unchained, the gospel not imprisoned by human traditions and human convention and released by the Spirit's interpretation. Lead us in that now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The series I kicked off on Sunday, if you weren't here Sunday, is called Better Call Paul, and I based it on a couple of TV shows that you might be familiar with. Not that I watched them, but I was always aware of them because I watch the ads for shows. One was Breaking Bad, which was a long saga of a couple of gentlemen involved with the Methadrine Laboratory. And the spinoff from that series is called Better Call Saul because once in a while these guys got into a legal jam as well they should, and there was a lawyer whom they called named Saul, so better call Saul. Well, I thought, wouldn't it be kind of clever to start a series since we were already going to do so after the end of the book of Revelation, we saw how much influence of Paul was involved in the book of Revelation, that it would be well, maybe fitting to call the series Better Call Paul. Now, certainly, Most of the epistles that Paul wrote were written on occasions. They were occasional. They were written because of a crisis developing in one of the churches, or in Romans there's a crisis that emerges very slowly that you don't really see at the beginning. But there was actually the gathering of the leaders and saying, well, we better call Paul. There's questions about marriage. There's questions about how do you accept the pagans in a mixture of pagans and how do you deal with Jews that are still scrupulous over points of the Torah and the pagans that are come unrushing into the church and the relationships to do with that. How, what are you going to do about marriage of unbelievers with believers and divorce and all of the crises that came up with the change of the, into the messianic age and the leadership often said, well, we better call Paul and Paul was asked questions and answered them. First Corinthians is a wonderful display of his answers to many questions that were posed to him about eating food offered to idols, marriage, 
divorce, sexuality, and fellowship, and what to divine or discipline of errant members, etc. And Paul answered. But I think from another standpoint, we look at the triune God, the Trinity, and in their council, they said, we better call Paul. The only way, the best way, I think, for God to demonstrate his unconditional grace is to demonstrate it in an extraordinary sinner. And Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, who changed his name essentially after the conversion of a leader, a procurator, a Roman procurator who was converted in Acts 13, named Sergius Paulus. And Paul took on the name that he had by birth as a Roman citizen, Paulos. He didn't just take on that name after salvation. It was a name he had at birth as a Roman citizen. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Roman name by birth as a Roman citizen was Paulos. And he simply started to go by Paul after a certain time when he was involved in his missionary enterprise. And he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1 as the chief of sinners. And this is not a mock humility. This is not a distorted testimony. This is a reality. He was, in fact, the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, because of the character of his sinfulness was directed toward Jesus Christ personally and the church. Why are you persecuting me, Saul, says Jesus, when he confronted him outside Damascus in probably 34 AD. And so, interestingly, God reveals his unconditional love in the gift of his son. He reveals his unconditional grace in the calling of Paul. Better call Paul, for in this way, says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, We can illustrate our unconditional grace. And what happens when the grace of God confronts the worst sinner that ever lived is a transformation by grace. And so God meets Saul, transforms him in an event of pure and utter grace. And this is one of the questions that I had For many years in studying Romans, why does Saul, a.k.a. Paul, in his transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, why why is his situation, his biographical situation, not reflected in Romans 1 through 4, which is supposed to be the record of justification, where people begin to assume, well, what you do is you try to obey the law at first, which is kind of strange when it comes to pagans because they didn't even know what the law was. And because you can't follow the law and you can't become sinlessly perfect by following the law, then you despair, you call out to God, and he justifies you by faith alone. Why didn't that happen with Saul? I mean, why did in his case, which is an exemplary case, Because he says in 116 of Timothy, 1 Timothy, I became an example to all those who would believe hereafter. Why then doesn't Paul fit that conventional 
traditional concept of justification by faith alone. When Paul's situation was that he was transferred by an encounter with Jesus Christ through a grace event, an apocalyptic event, and we'll be using that word many times in different nuances, into Christ, from sin into Christ, from Adam, the Adamic ontology called the flesh, into Christ, so that he was in Christ. What happened in between? Was he justified by faith alone? Or was he just transferred into the kingdom of God's son by pure grace? And this brought up, and I was very glad for Douglas Campbell's study, which I did complete. And I put in maybe 60 hours in my absence from you in trying to finish that book. Brought up the fact that through my study of him, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to use some of the themes that he came up with. I'm not going to just follow Campbell but I'm going to use some of the themes that he came up with as controlling themes in the interpretation of Romans because I think they're very important, and I agree with them. And after 40 years of studying Romans myself, I mean, I'm no novice in studying Romans. He's studied it for 20 years and on this particular theme. I think we're going to find out that in Romans, there is definitely a what I call a dialectic of contradictories. Throughout, there's a rhetorical argument. Some people call it polemical. Polemical comes from the Greek word polemos, which means war. There is a kind of an argumentative situation going on in which there is a dialectic or an argument between Paul with his gospel And a teacher, a famous teacher, a Jewish Christian teacher, just happens to be a Jewish Christian in Rome, who has a gospel that is entirely antagonistic to Paul's. And Paul's gospel is entirely irreconcilable with his. So if you have a dialectic, and we've looked at them before, a dialectic of contraries, which means one person holds us in a certain position, another person holds another position, And there's a reconciliation of the positions. You come to a middle term and kind of a higher ground where there's actually a reconciliation of the contrary positions. But there's another dialectic in which there is a dialectic of contradictories in which there is no reconciliation of the position and the counterposition. So what's happening in Romans is there's actually a dialectic or a rhetorical argument between Paul and his gospel of unconditional grace, and another teacher, well-known in Rome, with a gospel that is not the gospel at all. And you almost have kind of echoes of Galatians here, because Galatians, it was obvious. There was a false teacher. They presented a gospel. Paul said it doesn't even deserve the name gospel, and it's against the the one who called us into the grace of Christ and those who bring it ought to be anathema, etc. There was, and he said, there is a teacher. He said, I don't care what his name is. God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a, it isn't a matter of reputation. He will bear his judgment. And that we'll understand what that means in a while. Whoever he may be, whoever he may be, meaning that the teacher and that he's facing in Galatia is like the teacher that he's facing in Rome, someone who is well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, someone who is 
quite famous, but who has presented another gospel. Now, what's shocking, there are many shocks to the system that are going to happen as we go through Romans, specifically with Paul, although our study is more general than that. The first shock to the system is that we find that much of what, and I had to find, what much of what I held to be facets of the gospel are revealed in this dialectic, in this understanding of Romans, to actually be this other teacher's view. Now, the most controversial thing that Douglas Campbell did in this regard is to identify Romans 118 to 32 as a blocked speech, as a parodia, a parody. And he sent this epistle to Rome by a woman named Phoebe, who was called Diakonos, a servant, a special servant of God. She brought this, and normally what you did when you read the, an epistle is you would basically perform it in a dramatic sense. And we don't have punctuation in the Greek. And so if you punctuate, and this, which is, Douglas Campbell has done this to our great service, I think. If you do punctuate this, you find that Romans, and I agree with him on this, I've read books about his book already in which people have objected to him and he's replied to the objection. And I got all tuned into that when I read Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas for 3,000 pages. I got used to that presentation of a position, objection, reply. And that's exactly what Campbell did was reply. The most controversial thing was to say that 118 to 32 was actually a parody of a sermon of this Jewish Christian teacher. Now, what's apparent about this is if you study this, and I I have to look into this further, but it's more akin to what a book that was out at the same time, I think it came out around 45 AD, The Wisdom of Solomon. It's often considered canonical by some, some churches, but it's a, it is not canonical per se. In other words, it doesn't belong as a book in the Bible. But the philosophy of 118 to 32 and the tone and the condemnation of pagans that's in it is like the wisdom of Solomon. It's not like the Bible. It's not like Paul. And so Paul has this, Phoebe probably reads this epistle and probably even performs this in a kind of parody of a turn or burn message like we have today by televangelists or by evangelists both above and below the Mason-Dixon line. It's turn or burn is their whole sense, the whole message, as if people are able to somehow please God by returning around and being sorry for their sins, etc., and then avoiding something that the Bible never talks about, hell. And so she probably did this. I, th- I can picture Phoebe doing this in a performance-type thing. And then you have Romans 2.1. I'm just giving you an idea where we're going with this. Romans 2.1 where Paul says, but you are also without excuse. That's where Paul pipes in. And Paul pipes in, and you see this. I'm going to show you how this is punctuated down the road, so just be patient. But Paul then goes back and forth with this guy until by Romans 3.20, where he says all the world may be silent before God, by that time he has silenced this teacher. And so Romans 3.21, 
reaccelerates and shows Paul's program where he says there is now a righteousness from God. And that righteousness there, dikaiosune, as we're going to see, is the act of a king, a saving deliverance act enacted by a king. And it's the saving act of God in Christ. Now a righteousness from God, the saving act of God in Christ, an unconditional saving act of God. For when we use the word apocalyptic of Paul's writings, it means an unconditional soteriology, an unconditional salvation. For now there is a righteousness from God that is revealed, apocalypto, which is borne witness to by the law and the prophets. A righteousness from God and a righteousness of God to all those who are of faith. Now, be careful because when Paul says all those who are of faith, he's not referring to belief by which people acquire justification. Justification doesn't even mean something legal or forensic in Romans, and that's another shock to the system. And I I found this out a while ago as I was studying and intuiting this from Romans 5.18, that when it talked about justification, dikaiosune, it also says the words zoes, back to back, a justification of life. So justification should actually mean deliverance or liberation. A liberation of life. And we are not justified or given legal, a legal stand of righteousness by faith in Christ. No, we are delivered by the faithfulness of Christ. And salvation, therefore, is an act of unconditional grace. Even if you go to Ephesians 2.8. Now, this is arguable. This is debatable. But we're going to get there because we're going to be better call Paul for a long time. Note takers, BCP. Better call Paul. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace have you been saved through faith or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I think you're going to find that by grace you have been saved through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not of works. And I would even say not even of the work or the act of your personal faith. It's the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Faith then, and we're going to argue this and see this unfold, and I'm proclaiming before I'm explaining Faith is not a human means by which we secure justification or salvation. Faith is a certain gifted participation that God gives unconditionally to people whom he saves. Now, the the final revelation of Jesus Christ, which is what Roman revelation has been all about is going to be the realization by all humanity of that, which you in Christ already know, at least in part, at least obscurely, 
For now we see through a glass darkly. But many of the, much in the world doesn't even see at all. What we see darkly through a glass, we will see face to face, a universally, unconditionally saving Christ. The lamb that had been slain. And we will see that there is no retributive wrath in the future for anyone. We will see that, writ, that wrath or that expectation of judgment actually having taken place on the cross of Calvary. And we will see fully what we only see obscurely now, while all the rest of all humankind by resurrection will also see clearly what they haven't seen at all. So what I'm asking, what I'm basing this whole thing is, we have the advantage of having gone through Revelation for four and a half years and culminating in a distillation of Revelation in which we discovered that the writer of the book of Revelation is, entire, is greatly dependent on, or at least has great affinity with Paul the Apostle and all of his writings. And so can we say that all of Paul's writings together are an apocalypse? In other words, is all of Paul's writings together, taken together, is it a revelatory depiction of God in Christ and an unconditional soteriology. And so I would ask, and Campbell didn't address this in his book, I would say if this salvation is an act of unconditional grace rooted in the unrestricted love of God and the limitless benevolence of God in Christ, if it's unconditional, must it not ultimately be universal? I tend to think, yeah, and so I think we have USSJC with a twist now. Unconditional saving significance of Jesus Christ. And is that the same as, or does that mean the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ? Do all of Paul's writings, are they all together an apocalypse, a disclosure of Jesus Christ? Another way to put it is this. Is the gospel of God about his son all about his son? Or is it anthropocentric? Does it have something to do with man's ethical capacity by which he first of all recognizes God as creator through the creation under nat theo national or natural theology or does man not have that capacity at all has he no ethical capacity when Paul starts hammering home his catena of scriptures in Romans 3:10 he's showing there's none that seeks after God there's none that understands there's not all of them are all together this and so he says man has no ethical capacity to do what the teacher says in Romans 1:20 recognize God's invisible attributes and so it has to be you say what about Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God you know who wrote that somebody who was all ready aware of God's Messiah. That is the enlightened view of someone toward creation. That isn't the view of the rational man, the rational pagan, as it were, and we're all, once we're pagans, because sometimes Gentiles, ethne means heathen. You ever hear the, the legalists always like to call them heathen, the heathen. And 
It's usually related to something racial. In fact, let me tell you this. The conventional, traditional construal or interpretation of Romans was essentially adapted or adopted by the Nazis because they saw in it a criticism of the Jew, the Jew, when in fact all Paul was criticizing was a Jew who was a teacher of a false gospel. And he never denigrated the Jewish people. He was one of them. He said, all Israel is going to be saved. He said, has God forsaken his people? Of course not, he says. And so Paul never attacked Judaism as the Jewish religion. Never. But he was had a gripe with a Jew who emerges out of the shadows very gradually as you study Romans. And Paul totally and completely demolishes him and his gospel. And then Paul in Romans 5 through 8 especially presents his own version of the gospel. It begins with, therefore, being justified, which means being delivered by faith. And the faith is not your personal faith there, I will argue, but it is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Because in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over for our trespasses and he was raised up for our justification, for our deliverance. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the way that we were justified or given life. And therefore, faith in Romans 5 refers to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which was rewarded by him being raised from the dead. That's why Romans 1.17, the text verse that Paul selects for the whole gospel that he preaches is Habakkuk 2.4. And he construes this prophecy in a Christocentric way, a Christological way. My righteous one shall live by faith. Or my, God says, the righteous one will live by faith. Now, the anthropocentric gospel, which centers in man and man's ethical capacity and man's accountability to God before he can even be accountable, says, see, that means that someone who is righteous is righteous by believing, and then they're called upon to live, or they are given life on the basis of the fact that they believe. But that's not what Paul says. The righteous one there is Christ himself. And he lives by his fidelity, his faithfulness. The cross of Christ, his death on the cross, was the result of his faithful obedience to God, to the death of the cross, to the point of death. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name. God exalted him with life. And so resurrection there is the reward that God gave to the faithful one, the righteous one, who is his son. It's all about Christ. Therefore, being justified or delivered unconditionally and graciously by the faithfulness of Christ, we have peace with God. Peace with God is only had in the kingdom of God. It's only had because we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's dear son. And the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit in Romans 14, 17. 
Paul says, any true gospel preacher will teach you this way. In 14, 18. So what I'm trying to do is sort of introduce with an opening salvo. I'm kind of going right for the throat at the beginning of this thing. And right for the throat of this false gospel. There is a dialectic of contradictories. Shocks to the system include our own personal discovery that what we might have been taking as gospel and preaching as gospel and using the so-called Romans road to lead people to Christ, we have actually been siding with the gospel that is irreconcilable with Paul's true gospel. Now, how am I going to do this? And I kept, I was going through lots of, as usual, usual torment in my mind, how am I going to approach this, Father? I don't want to just follow Campbell's thing, but there's a lot of thing in, things in Campbell's 936-page door-stopping, tradition-stomping book. I can still see it. That are very good. In fact, they're revolutionary. In fact, they have the power to create something in the church that will surpass the effect of the Reformation in the 16th century. It will surpass that by a long shot. And it's not fair to say that the traditional construal of Romans is Lutheran because Luther, especially in his later days, spoke very universally about Jesus Christ and salvation. Spoke Calvin also spoke unconditionally of the grace of God for all man, all the human race. And it was only people who followed him that, dis- that said that there was a double predestination that God predestined some to damnation, which was Biza, the students, the students of Calvin. And so you can't blame it on Calvin or Luther, but there is a construal or interpretation of Romans, especially, that we're going to uh, tackle that has been around since the time of the Reformation. And all that's done is add to the eclipse of values that's begun to characterize our nation and our generations. All it's done is add to it. In fact, the worst application of Romans led to the Holocaust. The best application of Romans reveals Jesus Christ as the King, Messiah, and the act of God in Christ as righteousness, the very act of unconditional salvation for the human race performed by God in Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit is what God is revealing. That's called apocalypto. So you see in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of salvation to everyone who has faith. Is the gospel the power of salvation to you before you were gifted with faith? No. But once you're gifted with faith, you see the gospel as the power of salvation to everyone who has faith. But everyone who has faith has it because it's a gift from God. We'll see that explicitly stated in Romans 12, that faith is a gift. And explicitly stated, I think, in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you are saved through faithfulness, and that not of yourselves. That faithfulness isn't yours, it's Christ's. Grace is the unconditional act of God. Faith is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, by which you have been saved eternally. So there's eschatological assurance, 
But there's also an ethical efficacy. The salvation that God brings to us is not just an imputed righteousness where you can st- you still act sinfully all the time and it's normal to act sinfully all the time because it's not. The salvation that we receive is a circumcision not made with hands, but it is literally a deliverance from sin as a power, not just as a thing, but as a power, a, a deliverance from sin into Christ and therefore a deliverance from Adamic ontology, also known as the flesh. And so the gospel itself is transformative and liberative. It involves a new ethical capacity that's only realized not when you realize that there are certain things you must do after you're saved, but when you realize that you have been crucified with Christ. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive to God. As Romans 6, 1 through 8, 13 speaks of. So I'm kind of outlining this thing from the start. But how am I going to do this? The way I usually do it. Verse by verse. Let's start with Romans 1, 1 and see how this whole thing unfolds. I'm not going to just say these things. I want you to see these things. And I'm going to translate. And by the way, be... Patient, I do have a translation of Revelation almost ready, but I'm trying to do it in a in a way that gives the sense in in Nehemiah eight eight. So that'll be out fairly soon. So please be patient with me, though. Romans one one. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now I call him an imperial slave of Jesus Christ because we're going to find out that Jesus Christ is specifically referred to as King in this passage. As, in fact, God is pictured as king, Jesus Christ as king, as God's human and divine representative, and that the act of this monarch, God in Christ, is an unconditional salvation, not conditional. And so here we have the whole reason for the title, better call Paul. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. That means a qualified, thoroughly vetted emissary of Jesus Christ. What thoroughly vetted him? Well, to start with, his thoroughgoing sinfulness, followed by his being the object of unconditional grace. Now, I'm going to say something that might be a little shocking to you. Unless these truths are more important to you than political truths or your personal problems, you won't appreciate this teaching. And you won't face your personal problems with courage. You'll be like the snowflake generation that needs safe spaces and safety pins. Our soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq didn't have any safety pins or safe places. In fact, most of us live in a world where the, you, you can't guarantee a, guarantee a safe space. But I don't want to see a congregation, and I don't want to be this myself, of people so overcome by adversity that you wonder what they believe. It can't believe this triumphant gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm imprisoned. In 2 Timothy 2.9, but the word of God is not chained 
Paul's gospel is an unchained gospel, and it unchains prisoners. It releases prisoners. The whole problem is these truths are not more important in the mind and not entertained, and they don't preside in the mind over the things we face in life, over our personal adversities, or over political things and political trends. Political trends are going to go up and down. They're going to go like a roller coaster. They always have. They always will. But God's plan is a steady level thing. I want you to be oriented to God's providential plan of grace, not man's messed up performance in life. I don't want to see a generation prepared for a conquest that they can't even psychologically handle because they can't even psychologically handle another viewpoint in a classroom. What are they going to do if there is a disaster? They'll go catatonic. They'll find their own self, their own safe space internally in catatonic psychosis. That's how they'll handle it. And they'll be slaughtered, led like sheep to the slaughter. Or this message, which we have about 10 years more of freedom to proclaim, this message may be the very message that rescues that same generation and changes the whole Nietzschean prediction that there's going to be an eclipse of values, total eclipse of values in the 21st century into the total opposite of that, a glorious transcendent set of values held by the people of God that delivers a nation. Paul, an an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God. That's a glorious picture. Galatians reminds me of Galatians when Paul said, God set me apart from my mother's womb to reveal his son in me. And that's what he's saying here. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he previously announced. Through his prophets. Man, did we deal with the prophets in Revelation? Through the prophets. His prophets. Those are the same guys that spoke about this apocatastasis pantone, this restoration of all things in Acts 3.21, his prophets and the sacred scriptures concerning his son. Is the gospel of God about peri, P-E-R-I, his son? Is it all about his son? This is going to be a shock to the system of people who assume that they are Christocentric. I'm Christocentric. Well, you might find that you're adopting a gospel that's anthropocentric, rationalistic, and contrary to the gospel of Paul, which is thoroughly Christocentric. You might find that though you call yourselves a grace church, that you haven't even subscribed to the grace of God at all and don't understand the apocalyptic view of the gospel, which is an unconditional soteriology. There's no conditions you could have met, you see. There's no conditions you could have met. There is no dessert. And by that, I mean deserving. 
deserves got nine. And I heard your message, Brian, and thank you for the compliment about Pale Rider. But I, and I also heard Pastor Brown glory in the Cubs. And I conflated these two things because Pale Rider beat the tar out of a few guys that were attacking this young girl with a hickory stick, an axe handle. And he said at the end of it, there's nothing like a good piece of hickory. And then he threw it on one of the guys. Well, the conflation between that and the Cubs is that baseball bats are made of hickory. They used to be at least. That was before those things you hear, ping. He said, well, that's not a ball being hit. What is that? It's an aluminum bat, an aluminum bat. That's where our country began to fall to pieces. That's, that's where everything went to hell, right there, the aluminum bat. Because you go to a gall game, instead of hearing a crack, you hear a ping. It's not even fair. So I conflated the comments of those two pastors in their last messages, which I heard both of them today, and conflated it in the piece of hickory used by the pale rider was a foretaste of the baseball bat. Okay? Just thought you'd, well, you know, it's not all about just preaching. It's other interesting facts which reveal the somewhat psychological imbalance of the preacher. But anyways, so set apart to the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred scriptures, specifically illustrated in Habakkuk 2.4. For my righteous one will be delivered by his own fidelity. Jesus Christ was the one whom God justified, saving him out from death. And Jesus Christ is the only one that met a criteria of deserving by his faithful obedience to the Father to the extent of death on the cross. Here's another shock to the system. The cross and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ isn't the way God protected us from himself as if he's a God of retribution and vindictive justice. That has nothing to do with what the cross is all about. And so justification isn't the, oh, I hate to say this because this is a, first it shocked me. So if it shocks you, know that it shocked me first. As I said Sunday morning, I turned my hair white. So shocking. But justification is not the imputation of a legal righteousness to a sinner who believes in Christ. Justification, dikaio in Paul, is the deliverance of God unconditionally delivering a person by grace because his son was delivered from death after his faithfulness. When Christ was raised, therefore, it was for our deliverance. For when he was raised, we were raised. When he was crucified, we were crucified. I am crucified with Christ, says Galatians 2.20, probably the most potent verse in all of Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, delivered up for our trespasses, resurrected for our deliverance. I don't frustrate the grace of God by going on some program of human deserving either to get in or to stay in. 
I don't frustrate the grace of God because of justification or deliverance from God comes through works, then Christ has died for nothing. So I'm not going to get involved in a program of human deserving to get into Christ, nor am I going to engage in such a program to stay in once I'm in. Now then, if I yell, it's not anger, it's emphasis. Because I'm not angry. Although I am really angry about this other gospel. I really am. Because it's, it's hard to untangle it. We're going to do that. That's what we're going to do. Concerning his son who was born of the seed of David, that immediately identifies him as a monarch, as a messianic monarch, as the king. Therefore, Paul's identification of himself as a doulos of Jesus Christ is a very honorable position For he is an imperial servant of the king. There is a profound relationship of of Romans, as we're going to see, 117, 116 to 17, to Psalm 98. Or better, Psalm 97 in the LXX, which was brought up by Richard Hayes, who has an office apparently right down the hall from Douglas Campbell at Duke University. But he brought up the tremendous importance of the echo from Psalm 98, where righteousness from God is defined as the king's act of deliverance of his people. The king's, because of his authority and power, his act of delivering and rescuing his people is considered righteousness. Christ is the king. God is the king. Christ is his anointed human representative and divine And the act of God in Christ is righteousness. And the righteousness is the rescue of his people, which we will show is the human race by a saving act of God. What a tremendous unchained gospel this is. So this identifies his son born of the seed of David and therefore the royal line according to the flesh and designated as the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, by the spirit of sanctification, Holy Spirit's involvement with the resurrection of the humanity of Christ, as is also found in Romans 8.11. Why is he called the spirit of sanctification? Because throughout the prophets and the sacred scriptures, the Holy Spirit was responsible to sanctify or to set apart from impurity prophets priests, and kings. And when the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead, he was sanctifying Jesus Christ, who had become sin and raised from the dead. He had sanctified Jesus Christ as the king, the Messiah king, the priestly king, God's representative. This also goes all the way, shoots out to Romans 12.1. Therefore, based on these compassions of God, these mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable priestly service. And stop being conformed to this world. And what Paul means there is stop being conformed to this age by your constant adherence to this false teacher. We get that in Romans 16, 17 to 20. We finally see what Paul is saying. 
Mark those who have a different gospel than the one you've heard from me and avoid them. Separate yourself radically from them. Why? Because their gospel is irreconcilable with this gospel. So let's continue. He designated as the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, by the spirit of sanctification through whom we that's Jesus Christ through whom we Paul using, I think the editorial we here, the associative we speaking of himself, I received grace and apostleship to bring about the faithful obedience in all the nations on behalf of his name. So what does Paul see himself doing in closing? What does Paul see himself doing? The answer is he brings about a participation with Christ's own faithful obedience by all the nations. Isn't that a phrase that's also familiar after our excursion through Revelation? All the nations. All the pagans. All the heathen. All the nations to bring about the faithful obedience in all the nations on behalf of his name. So what's Paul see himself doing? Bringing about a participation with Christ's own faithful obedience by all the nations. All the nations is a phrase that's familiar to us now. And Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven to 28 rings in here as an echo, I think, which showcases the ultimate success of Paul's apostleship which we will see also in the eschatological future, Paul's success. For Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven to 28, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship, please notice that in Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight, kingship belongs to Yahweh. He rules over the nations. Kingship belongs. All the nations of the world will turn to him because kingship belongs to him. And kingship belonging to God instigates this whole action of what dikaiosune means. Dikaiosune is the righteous action of a king in the deliverance of his people. That's why the same psalm goes on to say, rejoice because God's coming to judge the earth. What? Rejoice? Well, the turn of burn preacher said, no, the wrath of God's coming on when Jesus Christ comes. When, why does the psalmist say rejoice because God's coming to judge the whole earth? What does judge there mean other than deliver? Rescue and deliver and liberate. All creation is waiting for the, the liberation that it's going to receive when the sons of God are manifested in glory. All creation is intensely groaning until it receives its liberation from corruption. So when God comes to judge the earth, it isn't to destroy the earth. It's to liberate the earth from corruption. So that's God's judgment in action. God is not a God of retributive retributive judgment. And some of us are going to learn this lesson very hard because we think that God, as Pastor Brown's message brilliantly brought out, we think that God is something like us because we see something done and we know justice should be called for on that being done. 
And by justice, we mean somebody's got to pay. And there is in the judicial system a system in which people are meant to pay and that that causes the protection of the rest of society, of course. But we're talking about God who doesn't have a stitch of retribution in him. God is love. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, says 1 John 1, 5, so that when John says God is love, he means there's nothing in him that isn't love. And so his justice is a function of his unrestricted love, his limitless benevolence, his limitless benevolence. And so our justification isn't God really mad, but he punished Jesus instead. So if we believe in Jesus, he imputes a righteousness to us that saves us from retribution. That's not what it's teaching. I saw it that way before God said, come up here and look from a higher level. That's how I saw it. And imagine the shock of sitting down one morning at 7.30 and reading and saying, it's the false teacher that said that. Or it's not the false teacher that said it, but it's a conventional construal of what Paul meant, that Paul didn't mean that. So to use the old dramatic presentation of a telephone, better call Paul. Hey, Paul. What we did, what did you what were you saying here? And he says, I'm glad you finally called me. It's not what the evangelical, fundamentalist, Pentecostal, charismatic, Catholic, Protestant, call it whatever you want, the main complex of believers in your time think it meant. It's not what I meant. Really? Well, it's a good thing I called you. Now you say, well, that's 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 not easy. It's not easy to find out what Paul said because we've got to really gut this out. But you know what I'm doing? I'm serving you sausage. Now, those that are vegans here will be despise me for the rest of your life. Go ahead. But the, the analogy is this. We all we heard this during the whole political mess. We're not we're not going to show you the sausage in being made. The sausage being made. If you saw sausage being made, you'd never eat sausage again. But if you're served sausage, you say, oh, this is delicious. I think it's delicious, personally. You don't have to, please. That's a, what do you call it, a protection of the future. But what I've done here is I've seen the sausage made. But I'm not going to do that to you guys. I'm going to just serve you the sausage. In other, or, put it another way. I'm not going to take you into the birthing suite to watch the birth of a baby. I'm just going to present the baby. All cleaned up, smiling, gurgling, burping. Here's the baby. And contrary to what some people might assume I'm doing here by talking about being justified or delivered by the faithfulness of Christ and not justified by personal faith, I'm not going to throw this baby out with the bathwater. All right? Thank you for your attentiveness, Father. We thank you for this opportunity. And it really is kind of interesting the way you've directed in this particular series of Better Call Paul. We've noted, and many of the believers that are here that have known us going through Revelation have seen your direction of us throughout these 
times. And we expect that our best understanding of Revelation is yet to come by the light that shines forth from Romans, because in your light we see light. But we pray that you'll continue to carefully instruct us and lead us and make us available to being led. May we adopt these truths and consider them precious. May we cherish these truths in the heart of our hearts so that we can truly manifest the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies, who even in the greatest and most horrific duress and distress of his life said, John, behold your mother and had concern for another. We ask for this a manifestation of the life of Jesus that's only possible by your omnipotent, unconditional, and glorious power of love.